listening to the official podcast of Oasis Community Church, where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. If you'd like to learn more about Oasis, request prayer, or get in touch with a pastor, visit our website at oasischurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. Good morning, everyone. Uh, This is our last uh, Sunday in our Epiphany series, and um, every year, Epiphany Uh, begins with a celebration of the baptism of Jesus. At the baptism of Jesus, a voice kind of comes from heaven and says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And every year, Epiphany ends with a celebration of the transfiguration of Jesus, which is this really amazing, kind of unique story about how Jesus kind of went up on the mountain with Peter, James, and John, and he was transfigured. He, he kind, of, kind of became this kind of figure of light. His, his face, it says, shone like the sun, and his clothes were, were shining uh, bright. One of the gospel writers, not Matthew, but one of the others, I think it was Mark, said, his robes were white, whiter than any fuller could have dyed them. A fuller is someone who dyes clothes. And so, once again, we hear the voice from heaven, the voice from the clouds saying, this is my son. So we might ask, why, why transfigure, right? Why this story of the transfiguration? And I think almost always the answer to the question of why we get a story can be found in its uh, literary context. Like what, what's going on in the larger story? So what has happened before, what is happening after, and that's going to tell us a lot of what's going on with this otherwise very kind of unique and even even kind of bizarre story about Jesus being transfigured. Well, just before this, Peter, um, Jesus had asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And Peter's like, well, or that they answered as a group. Uh, Well, some say Jeremiah, some say Elijah, some say one of the prophets. And Jesus says, well, who do you say that I am? And this time Peter speaks up and he says, well, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And according to Matthew, Jesus responds and says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And you are a rock and upon this rock I shall build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So now, while some people are saying Jesus is maybe Jeremiah who's been reincarnated or or Elijah who's been reincarnated, or maybe he's just like them, or one of the prophets. His disciples have said, you are the Christ. And he says, that's exactly right. But then Jesus goes further and interprets for them what that means. Because obviously what they think it means is different than what Jesus thinks it means. They are expecting that Jesus will establish a political and economic and military kingdom. Like he will displace the Romans and he will, he will establish the kingdom of God in Jerusalem and that Israel will be the promised land. Except Jesus says in response to Peter saying, you are the Christ, Jesus replies, well, the son of man must uh, be rejected and be ridiculed and be persecuted and suffer and die and on the third day be raised from the dead. And I don't know if Peter didn't hear that last part or if he was just so kind of shocked by the idea that the expected one, the promised one, was going to die. Like, that that can't be farther from the truth, right? 
The, the promised one is going to establish a kingdom. The king is going to be king, right? Not the king is going to lose. <laughs> the king is going to suffer. The king is going to die. And so when, when Jesus says that, Peter's like, well, not as long as I'm here. <laughs> and Jesus is like, get behind me, Satan, which is a pretty, pretty, rough, um, pretty rough rebuke. At least in Mark's version of that story, of, of, of Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, Jesus' definition of what the Christ means, one who suffers and one who dies. And then uh, Jesus' rebuke of Peter, I think it's often lost in translation. When Jesus tells Peter to get behind him, he's not telling Peter to depart from him. Like he's not sending Peter away. He's putting Peter in the right position. So instead of standing in front of Christ in opposition, he's asking Peter or telling Peter to get behind him. Because immediately after that, he looks around and says, and if anybody else wants to get behind me, right? If anybody else wants to be my disciple, they must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. So if, and I think that goes for all of us. If we want to be a disciple of Christ, we too have to get behind Christ. We have to follow Christ. But know this. That if we're behind Christ and following Christ, we're just in a long line, and at the front of that line is Peter. Because Peter was the first one to get behind him, right? The first one to follow. So in a story where now the disciples are full of dread to the extent that they understand what's going to happen, fear or confusion, right? So, okay, Jesus is not just a rabbi. Jesus is not just a prophet. Jesus is the long-expected Messiah, except the Messiah is not what we thought the Messiah was going to be. The Messiah is one who's going to suffer and die. What does that even mean? What do you think it means? I don't know. What do you think it means? I don't know. I'm confused. I'm troubled. I'm worried. And so it's right on the heels of that story that Jesus, it says it's six days later. That's how it starts, right? Luke says it was eight days later, <laughs> which is funny. Like, no one, no one really knows when these kind of things happen. Uh, the early church fathers went around and around with that just a little bit. They're like, well, Luke's probably counting like that first half a day and then the next, the last half a day. And uh, Matthew is probably just counting the full days in between. But in any case, I don't think it's that important. But the, this is important. Shortly thereafter, shortly thereafter, Jesus is like, hey, Peter, James, John, come with me. And they go up on the mountain, and, and Jesus is transfigured. Now, when he is transfigured, not only do Peter, James, and John see Jesus, but they also have this vision of Moses and Elijah, who were there with Jesus. And they're kind of perfect candidates, right? Moses is this kind of representation of the law. Elijah is this representation of, of the prophets. I mean, both of them are prophets, I guess, and both of them are miracle workers too, right? And so being prophet-like and being miracle-like is a perfect fit. I mean, who did people say that Jesus was? Some say Jeremiah, some say Elijah, some say one of the prophets. And now here Jesus stands amongst the two most famous prophets in the Hebrew tradition. But again, the, the early church fathers were helpful on this point because they said, look, Jesus had a reputation, and we talked about this last week. Jesus had a reputation of being a little abnormal as far as rabbis go, right? 
he was eating with a lot of people that a typical rabbi might not eat with. And he was including a lot of people in his community that a rabbi might not include, right? And so not only were there like tax collectors and zealots, but there were also sinners and prostitutes. Like this is a ragamuffin crew, uh, to quote Brennan Manning. This is a strange group this rabbi has following him. And again, last week we talked about how Jesus was kind of a new Moses. They both came up out of Egypt. Moses goes to the Red Sea. Jesus goes to the Jordan. Uh, Moses leads the Hebrews into 40 years in the wilderness. Jesus goes out 40 days into the, into the wilderness. Moses has the group divided into 12 tribes. Jesus calls 12 disciples. Moses is, is uh, historically responsible for these five books of the Torah. Matthew organizes Jesus' teaching in the gospel into five sections, right? Moses goes up on the mountain. Jesus goes up on the mountain. Even in the text that Ashley read for us today, when Moses was up on the mountain, a cloud came down on the mountain and a voice came from the mountain. That's exactly what's happening here. Jesus is up on a mountain. A cloud is on the mountain. A voice comes on the mountain. And who's there? Moses. <laughs> so for Moses to bear witness to Jesus is this affirmation. Like Jesus might be different. He might be the one who said, you have heard it said, quoting Moses, but... I say to you, right, this kind of radical interpretation, improvisation, as we said last week, right? But here's Moses, and Moses is like, yeah, this is our guy. And, uh, and Elijah is much the same way. Elijah is the great miracle worker, right? He's, he's praying for people. They're coming back to life. He's calling fire down from heaven, and he's the one who's also standing here. Now, Peter's response is, Lord, it's good that we're here. Let me, let me build or let us build three tents. Let's pitch three tents. Let's build three tabernacles. And no one has seemed to know what to say about Peter's statement. Both Matthew, not Matthew, we read the Matthew gospel. Both Mark and Luke have this parenthetical statement that says Peter didn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> Which I think that, that alone is funny, right? Peter, Peter said we should build three tents, and Mark and, and Luke are like, but we don't think Peter knew what he was saying. Matthew doesn't give us that point, but the, again, the early church fathers are helpful. Cyril of Alexander said he asked to build these tents because he thought he would know how this was all going to work out, and he wouldn't know. None of them could have known until after the resurrection, so he kind of gives them a pass. Jerome's a little harder on him. Jerome says, look, Peter's still not getting it. Peter's trying to build three tabernacles, one for Moses, one for uh, Elijah, and one for Jesus. But you shouldn't, right? That this, this event is to differentiate Jesus from the others. This, this is to say Jesus is like the Father, right? The Spirit of Christ this is, is none other than the Holy Spirit. And so what was wrong about Peter's uh, statement or Peter's desire is that he's still making the same confusion that the people were making, right? He's just one of the prophets. But I think John Chrysostom offers the best kind of read of this. Again, he's, he's really paying attention to the literary context. Peter has just heard from Jesus that he's going to have to die, that Jesus is going to die, right? So, now, Peter's learned something that this opposition that they've been 
that's been growing to Jesus, against Jesus, is real and dangerous. And if Jesus goes down to Jerusalem, this thing's going to go bad. But they're a long way from Jerusalem. They're way up in Galilee, and they're alone on a mountain. Let's just stay here. Let's, let's, just, build, let's just build some tents. Let's pitch some tents. Make a tabernacle. It's not a temple. He's not talking about, he's not talking about building a building, right? Let's just, let's just put up some tents, and let's just stay. Stay here. Here we'll be safe. Here you'll be alive. And so that's what Christostom thinks that Peter's doing, that he's just so comforted by the very presence of Christ. He's so reassured by the epiphany that, sure enough, the confession that he's the Christ apparently is true because look what's happened. He's transfigured into into a figure of light. He is more than what we thought. He's not just a great rabbi. He's more than a prophet. He's something else altogether, and now we know this for sure. It obviously had an impact on Peter because later Peter would write letters, right? First Peter and Second Peter. And in First Peter, he talks about this event. Like he's, he's like, of all the things we experience, the feedings and the, and the casting out of the demons and the healing of the sick, you know what we saw? <laughs> we went up on the mountain, me and my two buddies, the sons of Zebedee, and we saw him transfigured. You should read that section in First Peter, right? He, it really had an impact on him. And I, I think a lot of us can probably tell a similar testimony that there's some time in our life where we had some experience with God, it was so palatable, it was so transformative that it transfigured us. It had an impact on us. It shaped us, it marked us, it touched us. And now the rest of our lives, we're living with the impact of this. This is, what it's, this is what's happened for Peter. And this is what I think he's experiencing on that mountain. Now, I think Christostom's right that that certainly what Peter is trying to do is stay there in the moment. And the idea of building the tabernacles is a way of staying there longer. Growing up, you know, in an Appalachian Pentecostal church, we called this tarrying at the altar or waiting on the Lord. And we had these long prayer services. And sometimes there were lots of words and sometimes there weren't. Sometimes it was kind of loud, and sometimes it was quiet. And sometimes there were tears, and sometimes there was laughter. But there was this sense of lingering, of, of soaking in. Uh, in fact, there's, there's a whole movement um, that is actually called soaking prayer. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. It's become kind of popularized the last 30 years or so. But it's just kind of using, understanding that that the presence of God is a, is, is a good thing. The presence of God is a, is a beautiful thing. And, and I, I couldn't agree more. It is wonderful. It is precious. It's a gift. And so before I'm too quick to jump on the bandwagon of Peter didn't know what he was talking about, I think, yeah, how could you? How could you possibly know what to say? In the, in the presence of a transfigured Christ. No one had ever experienced anything like that before. As far as we know, no one's really experienced anything quite like that since. I mean, even the other nine disciples 
didn't experience it, right? They had to hear about the transfiguration much the same way we have to hear about the transfiguration. Hey, when we were up on the mountain, something crazy happened. But then a voice comes from the cloud. This is my son. Again, Mark and, and Luke are interesting because when they tell the baptism story, this year in, in Epiphany, we've been following Matthew. Uh, next year, we'll follow Mark. And believe it or not, the year after that, we'll follow Luke. <laughs> yeah. But in Mark's version and in Luke's version, the voice from heaven at the baptism of Jesus is in the second person singular. You are my son. When you're reading those stories, if you're paying really careful attention, it sounds like at the baptism, Jesus is having this personal epiphany, this affirmation, this, this voice of the Father, right? You are my son. I love you. That's, 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 that's how I read that in the second person. And then in their stories, when you get to the transfiguration, it's in the third person, right? It's an announcement. This is my son. Listen to him, <laughs> right? You have that extra added, listen to him, in the transfiguration story. Matthew uses the third person in both accounts. Like at the baptism, it makes it sound like it was a public announcement. Um, I, I, I imagined when I read Matthew, the voice of uh, James Earl Jones. I wish I, could, um, I wish I could do a James Earl Jones impersonation. Um, Donnie, I almost just called you on the spot to have you come up and do it, but I won't do that to you. But it's, you know, that really deep baritone. This is my son, in whom I'm well pleased. And everybody's like, ah. Right? But that's exactly what's happening on the, trans the Mount of Transfiguration. On the Mount of Transfiguration, the voice comes from the cloud, and they are all afraid. And we might all think that we would all respond to that, Right? We'd like to imagine that if we heard the voice of God, we would respond. But friends, let's be honest with one another. It's just not always the case. There's a story in John's gospel where, where Jesus is praying and God speaks to him. And people hear it. And some say, hey, he's talking to angels. And others say, nah, that was just thunder. God's hand is subtle. It can always be explained away. God can move in your life and you can choose to ignore it or not have faith to see it. And you can explain it away and say, yeah, it's just the natural world. It's the way things are. You're never truly certain about faith because certainty and faith are two different paradigms. Faith is its own epistemology. It's its own way of knowing. It's the substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things not seen. It's not about certainty. It's about trust. And that's exactly what Jesus is placing in his disciples. He's placing trust in his disciples even before they're trusting in him. Because he's speaking to them and they're like, oh, I don't know what that means. You know what that means? No. On the way down from the mountain, we didn't read this part of the passage, but a little bit later, on the way down from the mountain, they're like, what did you think that was? And they're like, I don't know. I'm not going to say. You think anything? When the voice comes from the cloud, first it says, listen to him. That's new information. We didn't get that at the baptism. But we should know this, that Jesus is not just our Savior, but our Lord. 
right? He's not just our, the one who comes and rescues us and liberates us. He's, he's our example. He's the one we are to follow. And we are told to do so. Secondly, when they experienced that, they did believe. <laughs> they believed that this was God speaking to them, and their response was fear. And I think that is so common for us to be overwhelmed, to be fearful. I think that's as natural as can be. But please don't forget that every time someone responds to the voice or the word or the presence of God with fear, every single time, the divine voice comes back, don't be afraid. Somehow we forget that. We embrace the fear as though the fear is the good thing. The fear might be natural, but it's not necessarily good. That's why we're always told, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. There's nothing to be afraid of here. If there was ever someone not to fear, <laughs> it's this one. Because he is good. He is beautiful. He is true. And he is loving. He has made you and created you in his image and likeness. He sent his son to die for you. He's given you his spirit to you. He created this world for you to live in. As St. Anthony said, I no longer fear God, but I love him. Fear might be the beginning of wisdom, but the end of wisdom is love. When you mature, you might not be able to hear that. That might be operating at a different frequency for you right now, but trust me on this one. <laughs> trust me. Stick with it. Stay with God. And you'll realize there is nothing here to be afraid of, even if that might be a natural response. Because once you have the epiphany of a transfigured Christ, you'll realize that all he wants is for you to be whole, which is part of the beauty of how this story ends. The story doesn't end with a transfigured Christ who remains transfigured because they look again and now they don't see Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. They look again and they don't see a Christ who's been transfigured. They see their friend. They see their rabbi. God wants to be with you so much so that God would, would pour himself out, that God would come and be, that God could be transfigured with the saints of old, but he would rather be with his friends and walk back down the mountain and have them tell their friends about what they've seen. There's a lot to talk about here in terms of our series about beyond belief. So it's not just believing, but what do we do after that? The transfiguration story is, I think, a pretty clear one here, is that after it, we tell the story. After it, we go. There's, a, there's an interesting part of Christian worship services that most all Christian worship services have, I believe, it's called the benediction. The term simply means good words. But it's a blessing. 
that's pronounced on the people. May the love of our Lord Jesus Christ, or may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with you all. Go in peace. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, may the love of God the Father, and may the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in peace. The reason that the benediction ends with like a mission or a commissioning, the go in peace, is that not unlike Peter, if we ever had an epiphany of the beauty of Christ, we might not ever leave. We would come and we'd sing, we'd feel God's presence. We, we, we would experience the adoration of the Eucharist, the, the realization that the bread and wine have become the body and blood of Christ and that we are communing at the table with him and we would just stay. Like Peter, we'd say, you know what? Why don't we just put up some tents? Anybody got some sleeping bags out there in their SUVs? We can pull them in here and we'll just stay. Let's just stay in the presence of God. And again, if, if you're looking for a critique of Peter, you're not going to find him with me today. I'm like, hey, you know what? Having a few tents, that might not be such a bad idea. Let's just hang out here for a while. But you know what the good thing is about tents and how tents maybe be better than temples or buildings? Is that even if you pitch a tent, you can always pull it up and go. Build that tabernacle. Bask in the presence and the beauty of God. But be ready to go. Because our God is a pilgrim God. Our God is a God on the move. Our God has places to take us. He has things he wants us to see and people he wants us to meet and stuff he wants us to do. Our God is a pilgrim God, which makes us a pilgrim people. So we need to have our tents ready to pitch them and stay when it's time to stay, but ready to pull up those stakes and go when it's time to go. We are a pilgrim people, not only because our God is a pilgrim God, but because our God is himself the very way. He is a pilgrim himself because he's on the move, but he is the pilgrim way. We are on the very way of Christ. As John will tell us, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. He is both our guide and the very agency and the means by which we live this life. So let's live this life. And again, as the old preachers used to say, I realize I'm preaching to the choir to say this one. That, that means I'm saying it to people who are already practicing it, if you, if you didn't translate the metaphor. Um... There is no substitute for our gathering together. As often as you can, come and be with the people of God. Bask in the presence so that as you go, you can then carry that presence with you. Be filled anew with the Spirit, so much so that it runs over and spills out onto the others, in your family, at your workplace, in your school, at the grocery store, in your neighborhood. 
Because we are a pilgrim people. And we serve a pilgrim God. We hope you were blessed by today's podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support us, you can do so by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can leave us a review on iTunes, and if you want to contribute to Oasis financially, you can go to oasischurch.org. May the Lord bless you and keep you, and may God's face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen.